Hello and welcome to the Ghosts and Folklore podcast. I'm Mark Reese, and on each episode, I investigate a different, weird, and wonderful subject. And on this episode, we are going to explore what has been described as one of the biggest poltergeist cases ever. Not just in Wales, but the world. A haunting that spanned more than a decade and includes all the classic phenomena you'd expect from such a case. From objects being thrown around in the air and at people, to strange sights, sounds, smells, sensations, and even the sighting of a full-bodied apparition. And what really makes this case stand out is that it was investigated by one of the leading academics in the field, and they did not dismiss this case as a hoax. And what makes it stand out for me personally is the name of the poltergeist. This is the most wonderfully named poltergeist in the world. This is the curious case of Peter the Poltergeist, or as he's better known by his very Welsh nickname, Pete the Polt. Yes, you are about to hear the curious case of Pete the Polt. And so, to begin at the beginning. And as with the last episode, I should begin by getting my shameless plug out of the way nice and quickly. But the tale you are about to hear does feature in my shiny new book, Paranormal Cardiff, which I'll be talking about a little bit more at the end of this episode. And as you've probably guessed from that, this tale does indeed take place in Cardiff, in the Welsh capital. And it concerns the aforementioned poltergeist called Pete, who was named Pete by the people who encountered him. And when I say him, there is evidence that will be coming up later on this episode to suggest that as far as they were concerned, this was indeed a male spirit. And the story of Pete the Polt begins in the early 1980s in Cardiff Mower Services. Cardiff Mower Services, a land mower repair shop with an adjoining garden accessory shop in an alley in the centre of town. And I should make clear right from the start that the business has relocated since the events you are going to hear on this episode. In fact, this episode pretty much ends with them moving locations. The business has moved. The business has also changed ownership. And if you are a budding poltergeist investigator, sadly, you cannot visit this place because the shop itself is no longer there and the business moved to another premises, which, to the best of my knowledge, was not haunted. Now, going back to the tale, back to the 1980s when the shop was there, going back to the future, as it were, and the events all started one night when a man called John, the owner of the business who had established it with his wife in the late 1970s, so a few years before these events began. John was there with his brother-in-law, Fred, and they were watching the rugby, because that's what all Welsh people do on a Saturday afternoon. They were watching the rugby on the television in the workshop when they heard stones hitting the roof, which they assumed was a childish prank. So, this wasn't in the middle of the night. They weren't in some spooky gothic castle. They were in the workshop in the middle of the day, 
watching Telly going about their business when they heard these stones hitting the roof, which they assumed was kids messing about, and they went outside to chase them away, but, and I'm sure you are one step ahead of me and you've guessed where this is going, but there was nobody there. So, they went back inside, continued with their work, continued watching the rugby. I'm not sure how much balance there is between work and rugby going on here, but they went back inside, continued with their work. But no sooner had they picked up their tools, but the stones were back. The stones kept coming. And it was as if some invisible force, some invisible hands, were throwing these stones at the workshop. And despite their best efforts to catch the culprit or culprits, in the end, they decided this had gone too far. This was beyond a childish prank. If this was kids messing around, they'd gone too far and they decided to phone the police. And as a result, the police visited Cardiff Mower Services and they were also unable to find any culprits or any signs of wrongdoing. And that was the end of the first recorded incident at Cardiff Mower Services, which is very typical of many poltergeist cases. The kind of poltergeist cases that have spanned the centuries in which stones, in which missiles are used to target homes, properties, businesses, people out and about on horseback, whoever it is, whatever it is, they get targeted by disgruntled employees sometimes looking for a little bit of revenge by the local kids, the local teenagers just out for a bit of fun. But sometimes, sometimes there are cases that are not explained so easily. And that appeared to be the case in Cardiff, where the stones were seemingly thrown by unseen hands and no culprit could be found by the people working there or the police who were called to investigate. Now, while this might have been the first incident, it was far from the last. There was many, many more to come. And soon afterwards, the stones returned, but this time they returned inside the workplace, where stones, as well as coins and bolts and all manner of small objects were thrown about the room, including some bizarre objects nobody there had even seen before, like old coins that were dated from 1912. These old coins that were found sometimes on surfaces, sometimes they just fell from the sky above. And they also found, and they did describe these objects as bizarre, and this is something I have certainly not come across in similar poltergeist cases, but they also found paper money pinned to the ceiling. And at this point, they did start to think maybe this isn't kids after all. They didn't necessarily think it was paranormal, but it was much more likely to be an adult than a child doing this, because trust me, as a child growing up in the 80s, Paper money, £1 notes, £5 notes, £10 notes, bigger even, were the kind of thing you might only see at Christmas and birthdays. Not the kind of thing you had go and spare in your pocket to go and stick to the ceiling of workshops. Back then, you were happy with half a pence. Never mind paper money to go and throw away on pretend ghost stories. And so, with all of this evidence mounting up, they did certainly start to think to quote, something strange was going on. And in particular, there was one corner that they were drawn to, a corner that is described as the active corner. And this is where things were experienced, where more rational explanations like people playing tricks on them didn't quite 
add up. Because in this corner, you might feel icy cold, or you might smell the whiff of burning, which is almost like the two extremes in the same place. You might feel icy cold in there, you might be shivering like on a winter's day, or you might catch the whiff of a roaring fire. It's either fantastically cold or the smell of something fantastically hot that is burning. And I am assuming this active corner did not have any heating equipment that might be letting off that smell or the opposite, any aircon equipment that might be making the place cold. Now, as a result, John and Fred had decided that somebody or something was certainly toying with them, paranormal or otherwise. This was not kids. It was either some playful or not so playful adult or adults, grown up people doing this, or it could be something a little bit more supernatural, something even more terrifying causing this. And they decided to test both theories at once by conducting what I think is quite a clever trick. They decided to conduct a seance. They were going to perform a seance there in the workshop. However, they didn't really think it was a ghost at this stage, but they thought by conducting a seance, that would mean everyone in the workshop, all the staff, anyone who might be in that building, would be gathered together around the workbench, which meant that if something did happen while they were there together, it would rule them out as the culprit. And if anything particularly strange happened, maybe, just maybe, there was a ghostly element to the story afterwards. So, the date and time was chosen. They locked all the doors. Everyone was locked inside the workshop. They linked fingertips not only could John and Fred see everyone, but their hands were linked to the table as well. And after doing so, they called out to the spirits, to anyone who might be listening. And they challenged them. They challenged them to throw a stone at them, much like you see on modern day television shows. But this was Cardiff in the 1980s. They challenged them to throw a stone. And can you believe it? It did just that. It responded to the request. It threw a stone. They were all together, locked in the room. Their fingers were locked together in that room. And something or someone threw a stone at them. And what followed is one of the more memorable moments of the affair, I think. But John, the owner, said aloud at this point that they should be recording the activity to keep a record of what was happening. But he didn't have a pen and paper with him because they were there linking fingers around a table. And at this point, the spirit, if indeed it was a spirit, threw an object at John. And it was the exact object he had asked aloud for. It's what he needed to record the events that would take in place. This spirit, if indeed it was a spirit, appeared to be listening to them, and they discovered that it could seemingly take requests. You could ask it for things, and it might throw them back at you. If they asked for things, if they asked for engine parts, engine parts would be thrown at them. And this continued, we are told, for two hours, after which they were satisfied that, yes, this must be, as the title of this podcast suggests, a poltergeist. After two hours of, of presumably having missiles thrown at them, they were satisfied. They were convinced it was a poltergeist. 
Now, one good thing about this case, or good as far as the owners were concerned, I should say, but unlike, say, the famous Enfield case that took place a few years before these events, which was a haunting in London that really scared people, that really freaked people out, in this case, the family were never really afraid of this poltergeist, or what they believed to be a poltergeist. And in fact, they believed it was more playful than malicious. And as such, they decided this must be a fun-loving, jolly young boy, or the spirit of a young boy. And as I mentioned earlier, there will be a sighting coming up at some point in this episode that may or may not confirm that. But they decided this ghost was more playful than nasty, and they decided to name him Pete or Peter. Now, I should say there's no, as far as I know, there's no historical reason for this. There was nobody called Pete who might have died or anything like that. I think it just rolled off the tongue nicely. Pete the Polt, Peter the Poltergeist, like Varney the Vampire or Wagner the Werewolf, Pete the Poltergeist. Although, now I've said that, if you'll forgive me, if you'll bear with me for a minute, I am going to go off on a very quick tangent, a very quick rant, a one-minute rant, that's all, I promise. But if you aren't familiar with Varney the vampire and Wagner the werewolf. They were penny dreadful characters, penny dreadful villains from 19th century English literature. And as you can probably tell from their names, they were chosen for the same reasons as Pete the Polt. Varney the Vampire, it works quite well there. V, V, Varney the Vampire, Pete the Polt, P, P again. But when it comes to Wagner the werewolf, it might look great on paper, two W words, W, W. But when you say that aloud, I think most people, a lot of people, I certainly would pronounce Wagner the way it's supposed to be pronounced in the German, which is Wagner, as in Richard Wagner, which makes it into a V word, not a W word, which makes Wagner the werewolf sound rubbish. Really, Wagner the vampire works just like Varney the vampire works. Wagner the werewolf? A bit rubbish. But anyway, rant over, back to Pete the Polt. And Pete the Polt, we are told, again to quote, became part of the family. So they really weren't scared of Pete. He was part of the family. And maybe at this point you're thinking, hang on, I wanted a terrifying poltergeist story, and this is starting to descend into Casper the Friendly Ghost. Why is Pete a part of the family? Why are they being so friendly? Well, nevertheless, they did want some answers. They wanted to know why he was there, where he came from. So, even if he was friendly and a part of the family, they had no idea why Peter was hanging around and, and playing with them if that's what he was doing. And so they turned to no less an authority than David Fontana, professor of psychology at Cardiff University at the time, and a future president of the SPR, the Society for Psychical Research, who have been mentioned many a time on this podcast, one of the longest-running and most eminent, respected groups of academics to investigate such matters. If David Fontana from the SPR is involved, this is now a serious investigation. This is not some, some bloke who's picked up an EMF meter on eBay. This really is the real deal. And this investigation is going to be thorough. And again, as I've mentioned on this podcast a number of times, most recently, actually, two episodes ago on the Halloween episode when we went out to do a ghost hunt. But when you do conduct a, a ghost hunt, a paranormal investigation, whatever you want to call these things, it isn't something that you do in one 
day. It's something that you return to again and again and again until you reach a conclusion. And that is exactly what Fontana did in this case. In fact, he took it to the next level. Never mind popping back a week later, a month later, a year later. He started this investigation in 1989 and he did not finish it until 1992. This is a thorough investigation and he published a very detailed report at the end. Now, I read that report while researching Paranormal Cardiff, available from all good bookshops offline and on, and I'm going to pick out a few highlights from his visits uh, for the sake of this podcast. If I read the entire thing, this would be a 10-hour episode, so I'm going to pick out some highlights. I think there might be some more tips here for but in Ghost Hunters as well, because as well as going back repeatedly, what Fontana also did was visit sporadically, and he always visited unannounced. The idea was that if he told somebody when he was going there, if indeed there was somebody playing tricks, this way they wouldn't have time to prepare. And he even went there when the family were on holiday. And so if the family themselves, and there's no indication they were, but if the family were possibly involved in this by going there when they were on holiday that would definitely rule them out and as it happened he did experience the same things while they were away but i'm getting ahead of myself slightly because let's go back to his first ever visit and he recalled that on his first visit a stone flew past him with a ping as he opened the door so he arrived unannounced opened the front door, a stone flew past him with a ping, and John, who was inside, turned around and said, there you are, he's welcoming you. So straight away, straight off the bat, he hasn't even stepped foot inside yet, and he's already experiencing what might be poltergeist phenomena. And this wasn't a one-off, in fact, it was a regular event. He witnessed Many, many, a strange sight and sound. And he wrote that it was rare for an investigator to be there when things actually happen. And I think that's a very important point with this case, because quite often researchers are going there based on testimony, secondhand testimony they've had from other people. But in this case, not only is he witnessing phenomena with his own senses, it's happening repeatedly. He is gathering a lot of information about multiple accounts, multiple cases of activity taking place in and around this property. And he also wrote about this active corner, this so-called active corner. And what I find particularly interesting about this is that he noted that you could throw a stone into it and a stone would be returned. So that in and of itself is strange. You throw a stone in, some invisible force seemingly throws it back. But what was particularly strange is that the stone thrown back he discovered was a different stone. So you throw a stone in, something or somebody throws a different stone back And this rules out the slim possibility that it was your stone bouncing back in some way. Your stone was not being returned. It was not bouncing. You were getting a brand new stone. Well, not a brand new stone, but you were getting a different stone in return. Now, this poltergeist activity was not confined to 
the workshop. Up until now, we've spoken about activity in the workshop and, of course, on the roof of the workshop to begin with. But it wasn't confined to the workshop or even the premises. There were reports from the alley outside from the church overlooking it. There are quotes from the vicar in that church. There was all this activity surrounding this area in Cardiff. And whatever was causing all of this, let's assume it was a poltergeist. Let's assume it was called Peter. In all of these reports, in all of these incidents, Pete never hurt anybody intentionally. He was always considered more childlike than malicious by whoever encountered this phenomena. And yes, he might throw things at you. He threw a heck of a lot of things at people. But it was always thrown lightly, and in some cases, it would appear he was trying to be helpful. As with that example earlier, where people asked for things and he made them appear, there were cases in which it was believed that Pete was trying to be helpful. And one in particular that did make me smile, I wish there'd been a a photograph of this. If this had happened nowadays, I'm sure somebody would have taken a photo. But there was one case where they believed Pete had tried being helpful by setting the table. I don't know of any other cases of poltergeists laying out plates and, and cutlery and things ready for lunch. But anyway, as with all of these accounts, he was never seen as being malicious. And as to his identity, well, I have mentioned a couple of times that there was a sighting. And this sighting came from Fred, the brother-in-law of the owner of John, and he recalled how he and John one day were fixing a mower in the workshop when he looked up and saw, to quote, a tiny boy on the shelf waving at him. So a bit like Elf on the Shelf, I guess, but, but scarier, as you'll discover from this description. This tiny boy on the shelf was, to quote, all grey. No face, but the face was there. It's hard to explain. Hard to explain, and it's hard for me to describe on a podcast, but they are Fred's words. It was all grey. No face, but the face was there. It's hard to explain. So I'm assuming that meant the the, the shape of the face was there, the head was there, but there was no distinctive features. Maybe there was no eyes, nose, mouth or something. But uh, Or maybe, maybe that's not what Fred meant at all. I'm just putting my own interpretation onto his words there. But Fred at the time, warned John not to make any sudden movements. John had his back to the shelves that this boy was on. Fred was looking at the shelves. And he said to John, don't make any sudden movements, but turn and look behind you. But John saw nothing. So despite turning around slowly so as not to surprise him, he could not see this figure, this faceless figure described by Fred. But Fred, however, was convinced that he had just seen with his own eyes Pete. There was Peter the poltergeist. And he would see him on at least three more occasions. In fact, Fred seemed to have some kind of connection with Pete. Because when the company relocated to larger premises, I did mention at the start that the company have moved a number of times since these events and the business has also been sold since these events. But when they moved from this location to larger premises, Pete did not go with them. In fact, his last sighting, the last time Fred saw him, was Pete waving goodbye as they left the premises. However... There is a creepy footnote to this story, because Fred came to suspect that Pete had not followed him to the new premises, 
but had followed him back to his personal home. Pete was now in his house, and there were, to quote again, countless little incidents in his house. So the haunting, as far as the company were concerned, was over when they moved premises. The haunting, as far as Fred was concerned, was not because it seemingly followed him home, although you'll be glad to know that Fred did find a way of removing Pete from his home as well after consulting with some people who could help with such affairs. But to wrap things up, to conclude this episode, we are going to go back to David Fontana's report to find out exactly in his words, in his expert opinion, what he believed was going on. And he did reveal a potential clue to Pete's real identity because he recorded that John had told him that a young boy was rumoured to have been killed in a nearby traffic accident. And following the publicity surrounding this haunting, because this was all over the press, local and national, after word got out about this haunting, John was approached by the young boy's elder brother, now an adult, we are told, who confirmed the death and wondered whether there might be a connection with the haunting. Now, Fontana himself found no evidence to confirm this, although it remained a possibility. And in conclusion, he wrote that while he could not rule out that it was an elaborate joke, having thoroughly checked the premises and after dismissing any environmental factors, he concluded there was a definite intelligence involved. So Fontana concluded that while it could have been a very elaborate joke, there was a definite intelligence involved. But the big question is, was that definite intelligence paranormal in nature? And that, dear listener, is a question I do not have the answer to. Heck, if David Fontana couldn't answer it, what chance have I got? And on that eerie, slightly open-ended note, we've reached the end of another episode of the Ghosts and Folklore podcast, one that maybe poses more questions than answers. And if you'd like to know more about this case, as mentioned at the start, and maybe once or twice during, it is one of the many spine-chilling stories that features in my new book, Paranormal Cardiff which spans the centuries of ghost stories in Cardiff. And what I've tried to do on this episode and the last episode is to give you a taste of the, the two extremes, really. On the last episode, we went back through the centuries to the tale of the vampire bed. And yes, your years are not deceiving you if you haven't heard that episode yet. The vampire bed was the last one. And on this one, we've brought things more up to date to living memory to the 1980s with Pete the Polt. Now, the book is available from all good bookshops offline and on. I always say try and support your local bookshop, but failing that, all of those big places on the internet are selling it. And I've had a few inquiries already about signed copies. I've done a few sign-ins, a few events here and there, and it's been absolutely amazing meeting everyone in person. But if you haven't been able to do that, and I appreciate the vast majority of my lovely listeners are outside of Wales, outside of Britain even. So I appreciate it's it's quite tricky for a lot of people to 
cross oceans just to pick up a signed copy of Paranormal Cardiff. But I am working with some shops who can ship these these tomes around the world. And so if you are interested in a signed copy, I will do my best to try and help you out. Just drop me a message via one of the usual social media channels. You can find me on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all the usual places. And of course, give me a follow while you're there. If you'd like to support the podcast, please give it a quick like or review or rating or tell your friends. It only takes seconds, but it does make a big difference to the podcast. And of course, if you really want to support the podcast, you can treat me to a coffee via my website. And on that self-promoting note, that shameless self-promoting note, it just leaves me to say thank you very much for listening. Dioch and Varian Amrando. I've been Mark Rice. This has been my Ghosts and Folklore podcast beaming to you from Wales to the world. And remember... The next time you find yourself plagued by a poltergeist, just ask it for a pen and paper. Maybe it's just trying to make itself useful. Who knows, if you ask it nicely, it might even lay the table for you. Until next time, Nostar. Nostar.